Hello everybody, this is a Bridges of Meaning Discord conversation. My name is Job and today my guest is Chris Young. Hey Chris, what brings you to the Discord? Oh, hey Job. Um, what brought me to the Discord was probably like a plurality of other people. I found Paul through his video, a pastor talks about Jordan Peterson's biblical series, however many years ago that was now. Um, and I've pretty much been listening ever since. I always, I would sometimes comment in the YouTube comment section, and uh, I finally decided to see if I could get myself involved in the online community. Um, so I've tried to tried to be in and out of the Discord just to um, you know build this into a real community. Um, at least for me to be more a part of, because I always felt like I was I was on the edges of it. You know, I'd, I never have scheduled a time to talk to Paul or anything like that, but I feel like I've been, um, I feel like I've been in the community, but like as a fly on the wall, strangely mm -hmm. enough. So I've tried to reach out to a few people and I've had some really cool conversations. I think Julian was the first person I spoke with and um, I spoke with Dr. Jim. Really? Yes, because I've been reading Charles Taylor's The Secular Age. Uh-huh. Oh, that's a hefty that tome. Of, yeah, that was the one, like, big book I gave myself this year to, to go through. And I kind of got halfway through and then uh, backpedaled a little bit and, and reread the first half and had a really cool conversation with Dr. Jim. Uh, for some reason, that book really just stuck out to me when I was like right at the end of last year i was going to either do that or something by owen barfield but I went with secular age uh i think just with all the conversations paul's had just realizing being someone who grew up in christianity kind of like a conservative baptist background in texas um i had a little bit of those my family was very private about religion but my church world and youth group, everybody was very evangelical and there was a lot of fundamentalist influence or at least a lot of fundamentalist voices around that tend to be the ones that suck up all the air. So I think I grew up with a little bit of both of the, that fundamentalist world and but still was very secular going off to college and going through deconstruction. I think um, I had to understand my own secularization and i feel like this book kind of helped explain a lot about me and hello oh yeah i you seem to drop out for a second i wasn't sure if you were still here yeah that was weird it was it was actually i guess my uh I hit a link by Sam over here in the chat. So let me just like get out of it because it literally pulled up his voice and I thought somebody else was on it. Okay. Sorry about that. Where did I drop out? I think I, I heard most of it. You said you went to college and you started deconstructing. So uh, as a bit of background of yourself, you came from a family where religion was kind of private and you said it was a Baptist background in Texas. Yes. What does it mean to be a Baptist in Texas? What's that like? Oh, wow. That's kind of wild. Well, you know, in some ways I had a little bit of an ideal 
church community growing up because it was, you know, all my mom's side of the family lived in the same town we did. So we all went to the same church. You know, you'd go Wednesday night to youth group and then you'd have Sunday morning with the family. My mom and my aunt, my grandma are singing in the choir. We were the back row Baptists, as they call them. We just kind of sneak in the back and sit (laughs) in the back back pew. You know, you stand up and and sing out of the hymnal and I would sit next to my grandpa and draw pictures of dinosaurs because he was a geologist, which was strangely a check against the fundamentalists because, you know, my grandpa was, was serious about his Christianity, but being a geologist, he was, you know, he wouldn't let me fall for, you know, 6,000 year age of the earth and all that kind of stuff. So I think I got a little bit, um, geopilled i guess by my grandfather early on that stuff were you close to your grandfather like did you talk yes did you discuss those things with him um yeah i think once i got a little bit older we'd discuss that kind of stuff age of the earth and in evolution he was very open to that kind of stuff so i feel like that was a little bit of a that that turned towards deconstruction for me because I actually I also got into the early liturgists um, podcast if you're familiar with those guys at all back in maybe 2013 Michael Gunger and Science Mike they got together and they did a new podcast and it was you know more of that kind of progressive Christianity but they came out swinging on evolution um, and that kind of started a deconstruction journey for me. So I didn't, I didn't have a problem trying to square evolution with um, a Christian anthropology. I, it definitely didn't square with like a fundamentalist type scientific approach to Genesis, but I really wasn't able to, to put that together until Peterson came along and he kind of provided a, a way through the woods on that. Um, just with the way he approaches that mythopoetic language, it really bypasses some of the some of the need to just um, write off the text rather than take it seriously. And I think I always had a passion to take the scriptures seriously, but being given a certain type of Protestant plain reading uh, hermeneutic that that just seemed so common. Uh, common, maybe the the more folk religious way to approach those kind of questions in the texts. Um, he kind of provided a, a vision through that, um, and that that's obviously what led me to Paul. But when you said you started deconstructing, does that mean you um, went to towards atheism or did that not happen for you did you start to look at your faith differently or how'd that go well i i started to because i actually remember probably right before i came across peterson so this would have been fall of 2016 i remember maybe it was the late summer of 2016 but i i subscribed to a podcast called life after god and I was starting to listen to more Sam Harris. Mm. Um, and I appreciated Sam Harris because I really liked his desire to develop a type of spirituality. But I just 
kept hating his really shallow analysis of Christian beliefs. And it, it was really just, just accept the most straw man caricature that a fundamentalist can give you of what Christianity is supposed to mean. And then you just tear that apart. And that's the Sam Harris game. That's how it felt to me when people would try to share maybe his most, most powerful takedowns of Christianity. I think in my, in the start of my deconstruction, what I was trying to deconstruct about my Christianity was all the, you know, all the really shallow readings. And there were times I would come across people like Gerard or um, Karl Barth, some of those, some of those later, and even, even N.T. Wright talking about new perspective on Paul. It really was me finding a way to take the scriptures seriously and realize that the framing I'd been given to read them was, was not working for me. And the reason I think I was thrown into that is because I was going to a more charismatic church. My wife is a worship leader at the church. I'd play on the worship team. We'd, we'd set up and tear down at a YMCA gym every Sunday morning. And, you know, they were very assemblies of God type. I don't know how familiar familiar you are with American charismatic Christian world, but that's kind of my wife's background. I know nothing about it. Yeah, it's pretty, you know, all the speaking in tongues and laying on of hands and healing and falling out. and. I thought worships. that was Pentecostal. Oh, yeah. So it's, yeah, charismatic and Pentecostal. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm interchanging those terms a little bit, but it's very much in that Pentecostal river that it's floating in. I, maybe charismatic is a little bit of a, uh, a tamed type of Pentecostalism. Because I go to a more charismatic church nowadays, but it doesn't, it, it has its Pentecostal mode. I think, okay. I, oh, there you are. Okay. You said it has its Pentecostal moments and you kind of dropped out around that. But I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that's not comparable to baptism, right? Correct. So growing up, I've, I never really heard any much about the whole charismatic flavor. You know, I guess you'd hear rumors of the types of churches where somebody started speaking in tongues and being a Baptist with, without that worldview, any, anything that, that smelled of like being, I guess, spiritual, I think in that Southern Baptist perspective, it's like, Oh, well that must be something demonic. Like in the same way that, the church kind of deconstructed the idea of magic in early modernity. It's like Baptists approach the charismatic gifts kind of in the same way. They're very nervous and skeptical and it can actually break apart. It, it broke apart a lot of Baptist churches because I'd say there was a charismatic move within the Baptist church, 80s, 90s, 2000s that, you know, developed like this. They call themselves spirit filled Baptists, you know, hmm. um, and so there's that that baptism of the Holy Spirit being, you know, separate from from your water baptism. A lot of that kind of stuff. But the the point of I guess the point of this kind of detour is that in my in my journey, my church had gone through a uh, 
a supernatural ministry school by uh, Bethel Church out in Reading. They had bought the curriculum, and we'd meet every Tuesday night and watch the videos and go through the lessons. And it really, the way Paul describes that Pentecostalism is a real, a real flattening, like flattening of the spiritual and the natural together. Everything is maybe a little bit more continuous and, and magical, but they also develop a, a very formulaic type of faith where do this, do that, get this outcome in your life. And if you do that sincerely enough and really commit to it and it doesn't pan out how it's told to you, you know, it kind of causes a little bit of a faith crisis, especially if you kind of passionately go in on all that, because you can really, you know, some of those long worship service and some of those type of more charismatic rituals, I would say, can really um, have an emotional, spiritual effect on you. And so I think it kind of threw me for a loop just with what I'd gone through in my life and how it was no longer really making sense of the world to me. And so I had to go through a process of trying to, to like take that all apart, you know? Um, and so you find, you know, really easy, you know, it's, it's always like Genesis one through three, and then it's the problem of evil, evil and the question of hell and, what is Satan in the Bible? Because I think I just had a very, you know, simplistic um, God versus Satan, almost mm -hmm. like this dualistic belief. And um, a guy like N.T. Wright comes along and kind of shakes up that go to heaven when, when you die uh, thesis of Christianity that's been developed in modern American evangelicalism. Right. And... Um, and I think my deconstruction actually led me to take it more seriously, but it also just blew out a lot of the foundation of how I understood the world. So it's, it was very, it was a lot to try to put back together. Um, Cause deconstruction is very, you know, very powerful tool, very powerful method. And as somebody who's, you know, I've, I've always loved history and, uh, the history of ideas and all that kind of stuff. It was fun for me, but just a lot, a lot to, to work through. And I think uh, connecting with Paul, you know, keeping up with Livingstone's sermons and listening in on the conversations and finding out I'm not, you know, wasn't the only guy dealing with the same kind of thing uh, was very, very helpful to me. Wasn't it, wasn't it strange to you how Peterson interprets the Bible and how he kind of walks away with these stories in a different perspective? Yes, it was, it was very strange, but it was also, one of the things that was really strange about it is that it actually reminded me of moments I would have listening to Bill Johnson from Reading um, approach maybe like an Old Testament text that honestly I had never read and or heard before, you know, maybe you'd hear some of the names and a little bit of the story, but he really does have this creative approach oftentimes to reading the text. 
of of inspiration and and revelation you know he's not he's not really like this academic systematic theologian sure so i'm sure he could talk some of that language but he really does have this creative open way of reading the text that can present itself in a new way now he gets himself in trouble a lot of times you know you can find you know bethel heresy all over the internet if you want and just play those games but when peterson came across it it was the best part about it was that he wasn't stuck in a certain type of christian frame he had this very broad ranging philosophical uh historical consideration like weaving together of mythology in a way i'd never thought about it but just immediately made sense when he when he played around with that mythopoetic language and it you know just connects to connects to you at such a visceral level because you see how the philosophy connects to the idea of a story verse like paul talks about and so when you can connect when i can connect those ideas philosophically and mythologically mythologically to my own story and it connects in such a way that kind of unlocked the text for me to be less of read it think about what it says plainly and then develop your theology of the world from there you know Mm. it's it's a much um a, a much deeper and like it it really considers maybe some of the theology you can talk about around like the first Adam and the second Adam, because when he talked about a human being being like two things, like you are a human, you are who you are now living in this moment in time, but you are also the same platform as a human who had a story that lived, you know, 150,000 years ago. And you're, you're essentially the same thing. So there's like this primordial man, in time that you are, but there's also the specific man that you are in a smaller moment in time in your own story. Um, that's bringing me back to Charles Taylor. I, I really got fascinated by the way he approached explaining the development of how we think about time. He had a little bit, he had the, there's a, I wish I had the book on me. Um, he talks about the he uses the words nunkstans. I don't know what that, what language it is, probably Latin or something, but it means the flowing now. Um, this idea of God being present in all time, but we think about time as this endless series of points mm-hmm. for it, forever moving forward. But then there's that more liturgical idea of time where where you're you're coming back every year to a moment in time. So he's talking about Easter, the day of the Easter day in any given year is is closer to the original Easter than maybe the next day would be. Right, right. That way of, of thinking about a calendar. So that really, I don't know if I would have read Taylor and really understood it if I didn't have that that explanation from from Jordan Peterson talking about what a human is mythologically and how that mythological view can kind of interweave with, you know, a scientific evolutionary approach to, to making sense of all, all of that. So. Has that changed your view of who God is? 
it definitely made it made God much more mysterious to me. Um, and you know, I think when I went into my deconstruction, the one thing when I would get, you know, more desperation and like feeling like I'm losing faith, I felt like the one thing I would hold on to was, you know, the idea of resurrection because I had experienced that like metaphorically in my own life. And it just made sense to me, like things, things do die and, and come back to life. Like there is this this flow that's represented by Christ. That sounds like a little bit new agey when I, when I say it now and like think back, I don't, I don't really, I'm kind of, I kind of don't like that, that new agey approach anymore. Um, maybe I was playing around with it like that earlier, but I think the, you know, the God number one, God number two distinction that, that Paul was playing with really helped with that because in the charismatic world, they really do collapse. Oftentimes they can collapse the Trinity down into one thing and they just like let that. And then, and then they just call it Jesus or the Holy spirit. They don't really talk about that, that idea of God number one very much. You know, I, Obviously, there's going to be a focus on God being incarnated and then being within community, so you can understand the focus on uh, a theology of Jesus and a theology of the Holy Spirit. But that God number one, just sometimes, if maybe if you would ask a, a normie charismatic what that mean, what God the Father would mean, it was kind of like, well, that was a, you know, an earlier manifestation or or image of what we used to think. And then, you know, Christ came in and, and changed that and perfected where we had gotten it wrong. I see, a, I see a lot of that, of that in some of the deconstruction moves too. How so? And, uh, uh, it, well, that's where people accuse, start accusing people of Marcionism uh -huh. that, you know, the God of the old Testament has been kind of superseded by the new, the new revelation revelation of the new testament and so you kind of get lost in some of those like heresy theology debates going down that road um but in some ways like the charismatic world they don't really get all that sophisticated theologically um that if they're going to talk about god the father they're going to talk about the father heart of god that's going to be the message you know that and so they'll they'll take this metaf metaphorical approach of why he's called God the Father, but it's not it's not so deep in that imminent transcendent frame that Paul talks about sometimes, or that Charles Taylor is playing with mm -hmm. within a secular age. Um, so I think I have I, I think maybe I grew up with God the Father or as being like, you know, the distant man in the sky, very, very deistic, very providential deistic. I think that was, I think that was more of the way my family 
thought about God. It def- my family was definitely that kind of Cold War, <laughs> um, you know, religion as good civic value and good personal private morality teaching that kind of stuff and that you know if you you live correctly then providence works in your favor right there's less less of the relational there right so i think i had that understanding of god and then jesus was just there to be like you know oh hey that that angry guy up in the sky he's not mad at you anymore right (laughs) i think a lot of people a lot of people kind of see it that way and in deconstruction, you know, with the problem of evil or say the the genocide of the Amalekites, it was like, you know, you want to deconstruct that that image of God because that's, you know, God doing some horrible, immoral genocide or whatever. And so some of that God the Father theology gets gets really I don't know. People are getting really playful with it, I think. And I appreciate how Paul just kind of sticks to like, look, you're not going to button up all these questions and implications about God and his sovereignty by, you know, these type of uh, modern moral judgments that we have and want to project onto God. You know, God's a little bit, a little bit more mysterious maybe with his will. And so, why are you worrying about God? God's will? What are you doing with your own? That's also where Peterson kind of comes into with the clean your room bucko. So, yeah, I definitely a bu- I was definitely a bucko that needed some room cleaning and uh, a way out of existential angst. So, yeah, it's definitely a bit of Book of Job there. Like, <laughs> who are you to ask? Yeah. Like, what the hell have you done, kid? Yeah. Back to that, because you were talking about uh, a bit of Martianism, OTNT. Uh, and so how, I find that pretty difficult. Like, you know, you read the Old Testament, you know, re- you read Judges and Kings and and uh, Numbers. It's just so much awful bloodshed and atrocities and genocides, like, like you were saying. And I find that hard to square because... Me too, me too. You know, you have God showing up and supposedly telling Moses, all right, Moses, here's what you do. You're going to kill all of them, except the virgins. (laughs) You can keep those. And then, you know, you have God incarnate showing up in the new book who's saying, you know what you should do? You should love your enemy. And I go, oh, you know, that's a bit of a shift there, God. What happened? So the joke was that God bellowed out when he became a father, but... (laughs) I still I still find that tricky. Then I always, you know, I get that little voice in my head going, well, you know, that's just because those were just people doing their thing. And that wasn't really God talking to them, you know, but. Right. On the other hand, then you read all these books and like for some reason, people felt the need to write all that stuff down. I find that interesting right. as well. Like, why the hell would you write all that down? Especially the stuff where they aren't doing all that well. Right. They don't they don't exactly, you know, revise their history to the point to make themselves look like these great heroes all through time. It's it really is this self-critical cultural autobiography that they're writing. 
and um you know if things go if things go wrong they just they assume it's their fault and their problem to fix oftentimes and you know if people if no one does stand up to take any responsibility it's 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 kind of the the threat is this this could be the end of the line for you and to me that's just like a microcosm of the entire human story so you know we're all we're all filled with tragedy and loss and violence and horrible murderous rage you know and hive minds going out of control into you know revolutionary fervor and violence i mean it's just it's like you can you can see the whole range of human experience in those texts and so you can kind you i think you can find yourself in the story and i'm not so sure you know i don't i don't let myself get wrapped up in the theological contradictions as much anymore just there's some things you just are always going to be left open and we'll always talk around them because we're always still trying to to work these things out you know yeah and and the benefit of the text is that like you know there is a tradition of wisdom attempting to tell enough of these stories that you know, maybe if we know how to read them, we can make make our way th- through our own great filter. You know, um, I really do like that idea in the in like the Fermi paradox of the great filter. Mm-hmm. Of you know, what's what's the question of if the the universe is so huge, why is it not teeming with life, and why are we not seeming to come across it? Why does it seem dark and empty and endless and Okay, well, maybe maybe there once was intelligent that lives intelligence that lives somewhere, but they're not around anymore because they reached this this great filter. And you know, I kind of wonder if <clears throat> that idea of of an age, the age to come, that's implied by Jesus, is is very similar to that idea of of humanity being able to move past these filters before us that seem to promise or guarantee that you know we're we're cut off and there is no future lineage for for humanity i think christ and maybe a barfieldian revolution of consciousness that he implies is maybe getting at some of those types of questions because you know you start running the scientific equation forward of what's going to happen to the earth and our solar system and then our you know, our little wing of the Milky Way and everything spreading apart and light no longer being seen, you know, just this, what is it, the slow, slow death of the universe, you know, what, how do you square that with the promise of an age to come of a redeemed and remade materiality? Um, It is such a weird idea, like you look at all that, that vast emptiness and like you're saying, the slow march to to oblivion. And at the same time, you know, my wife's uterus is just preparing for the next, you know, uh, generation to... to. It's, it's just such a strange... 
how these things are, are, how do you say it in English, how they stand in opposition of each other. Yeah. And I think there's, a, you know, there's even a psalm about this sort of stuff, like, yeah, you know, what are we humans that you, that you look at as God? And I don't know, I, I can't comprehend it. It is, it is very easy then to just look, sorry, I moved my cat out, but I don't know what's going on with her. It's very easy to, to just go sort of into existential despair when you look at that. Like, well, you know, what's, what's the bloody point? Right. And and what you said earlier that we as humans that we you know what are we doing? That there's this interesting thing I saw today on Twitter because you see this sentiment a lot these days, where somebody linked to an article where it says, "Oh, there's a lot of uh, new um, hand sanitizer now." It turns out it's actually you know toxic. It's like poison, whatever, badly produced, and. Whoever linked to that article said, you know, we just don't deserve to survive this. We're just, you know, we'll always be broken. We're just always going to screw up because we're not the way we should be. And there's just so much in there that, yeah, it's just we can't help ourselves. We we can't right. see beyond, you know, we... we, we um, we look at that great emptiness, yet we can't even look past a couple of weeks when we act. Right. And that, even that ethos that's demonstrated by that article and that commentary is like, I can already think of like two Bible stories that's playing with the st that same idea. You know, oh, go you ahead. Have, yeah. You have Noah and you have, you have Jonah and you have like, you know, what happens in Nineveh. I, I feel like it's all, it is this like deep cynical despair of like, we know that about our fallen selves. Right. And if we play it forward, you can, you could reach that dark, uh, dark nihilism. You know, I don't think it's, you know, I was always told nihilism is a, a modern idea. It's like, well, I don't know. It's, it's, I see a lot, I read lamentations and, that seems pretty nihilistic. You know, it's not just... Or Ecclesiastes. It's, right, yeah. It's not just modernity that produces nihilism, you know. Um, I think... Kind of a... Yeah. It might exacerbate it. Um, but, you know, you see, I just you see those themes played around with the Bible, and I think a lot of people just know nothing about the Bible enough to be like, oh, there are these, these lessons about what it means for for our humanity but you know the strange thing if we're going back and thinking about maybe an age to come in a christian worldview it's like what is life but this strange anti-entropic force yes moving yeah moving forward in a dying universe and the promise of resurrection in a new age kind of seems to me to be the the only like sensible path you could take because uh, there's no there's no escape from materiality is there like you are you are not you without being embodied in flesh right 
So it's like you're not going to live on as some spirit floating off where. No. Maybe it's just a long, a long sleep. I think, you know, in my deconstruction, I kind of settled upon the annihilationist view of hell mm-hmm. or somewhere between annihilationism and um, Christian universalism, really, where all will be eventually made right with God. Some, somewhere between those two two points is kind of where I settle. But I do, I do see more nowadays the, the eternal torment side of hell, too. And I think, I think Peterson helped knock me out of that, that, um, complete rejection of that idea of hell, because, you know, at times I could say, I don't believe in hell and other times I do, because you can see it like poking its head out in the world. Um, you know, if, if, if heaven is this, (laughs) this ever present reality that's out of reach, hell is too. And it doesn't seem like, you know, you could, you can read enough history to find the moments where people made the wrong decisions that led to, that led down the road to hell. Right. Mm. Um, and so if, if we, if we continue as humanity, as this anti entropic bag of flesh, <laughs> you know, what, yeah. What do we do to keep oriented towards, the good to, you know. Yeah, but why is why is an anti-entropic whatever the project f- is right? Why is an anti-entropic bag of flesh aim, aiming towards the good anyway? Like, what's up with that? Right. We ha- do we have this this sense that those are connected? Well, none of this makes any sense. And they're like, well, what other option is there? And then I look at like Daniel Dennett, who says, well, you know, consciousness is an illusion. It's just. You know, and Dawkins will say we're just dancing to our DNA. And like, well, yeah, but you know, th- there's nothing there either. Then you're, you're, your your own consciousness is claiming that consciousness is an illusion, and your own senses are claiming that your senses aren't to be trusted. Like, th- I can't make heads or tails of it anyway. It, yeah, that's where I get stuck. It's just it seems like an endless spiral downward. That's just like keeps being self-referential or something um yeah you know it, it just leads directly obviously to simulation theory which is creationism for a for atheists which i think well, i probably heard paul say that for the first time or maybe it was you but i loved it it's just like i think i laughed really hard probably paul i'm not that clever no but yeah. it what, what what makes me uh i gotta see if i can find that thought back so we as humans, you know, anti-entropic meat bags, man, I'm going to use that. Um, <laughs> we look at ourselves and we're like, well, this is all wrong. <laughs> Which is the weirdest right. thing. Like nothing else does that. We look at it like, oh, shit, <laughs> I'm stuck in this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you know, when we're, we're, all these other meat bags are around me and they're not, they're not doing the right thing either. Yep everything screams that we're supposed to be doing something else towards something else. And yeah, at the same time, you know, like I hung a crucifix in my house this week, like, all right, let's see if I can get myself to do that. So I do. And I, you know, all of me is like, what are you doing? You crazy person hanging a crucifix in your house. That's what crazy people do. Like, well, 
it's uh, uh, the alternative is just as bleak. I might as well hang a crucifix in my house and see what happens. Yeah. Which, yeah, it's, I don't know if <laughs> it's just. Do you feel? Does it make you feel superstitious? Is that what it That's is? That's a good question. I I think it confronts me with the idea that I am more okay with being religious than I used to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And what I have noticed is that it makes it makes God seem more real, like he actually exists, like he's closer. And I mm. think that's how icons work. Like that's something that kind of struck me today. Like that's why those are there. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, your God one is is you 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 can't get your head around it. It's or him or whatever. It's there's there's too much of of God, and too little of you. I mean, very much how Peterson says you can't. You know, there's too much reality. You got to speak the truth because you can't win. It there's too much of it that you can't oversee it. Now, of course, you know Peterson's reality is is different than God number one, I would say. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, and I'm, kind of, I'm kind of rambling now, but that whole speaking the truth and, and bringing the best possible future into being, so there's, and then as I meet back, I'm all like, oh, wow, you know, that's so amazing. Like, none of this makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> that's when you just... I guess that's why Peterson goes to working it out in your own life and uh, let it reverberate upwards from there. Yeah. I, I, if it's if it's beneficial, you know, there's like a... <clears throat> there could be a, a type of positive feedback loop to the good or a positive contagion to the good, but maybe it has like a lower top speed. <laughs> But also kind you know of doing I mean? that without that surrounding despair, you know, kind of kind of how Augustine would say, like you you, you let yourself sink back into God, and mm. because of that, you you pursue the good, not in this sort of existential dread that that Peterson can kind of be like, sort of that yeah. that the terror of not knowing whether you make the right choice. It it kind of it kind of you start acting out of sort of this 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 loving cushioning. Yeah. And it's it seems to imply a little bit more of a that still heart and still mind whereas in that existential mode you're it's almost like you're reaching for whatever you can because you're just you're so wound up. Yeah. You know, you're so you're so not at ease. So yeah, I need that's is that from like confessions or something? Oof, I don't I didn't I never finished Confessions, but I, I listened to an audiobook recently. Uh it's called On the Road with Saint Augustine. And uh it's very much about the Augustine and how he influenced the German and French existentialists and how his mother, Monica, was a huge influence on, on Augustine himself. And then it draws parallels to uh like Jack Kerouac and uh, the beat poets like uh, Allen Ginsberg. So, oh wow! If you're into that sort of stuff, yeah, I could recommend it. I, uh, yeah, if I if I didn't have so many other books, I'd listen to it again. It's, uh, it was, it was know, pretty right? good. Yeah, you know what? I think I had a pastor buddy of mine recommend that book to me recently. It's, it's not. It's not too. Thick. I haven't read much on Augustine. 
maybe, you know, when I did political theory in college, we read City of God, but it's oh, been yeah. so long because I was a I was actually a political science and music major at college. So I've always loved political philosophy and theory. And, you know, you read a, we read a little bit of Aquinas and a little bit of Augustine. Yes, interesting. So, so those yeah. are those are part of political philosophy. Yeah, and that political theory class, I guess you. Um, I mean, Augustine really is kind of the the roundabout that you that you come to in the West. You know, that goes all in all sorts of different directions. But he's such a pivotal figure. Just. Um, yeah, it's, I remember we we obviously read Plato's Republic and we read The City of God and yeah, I mean, just trying to figure out those developments in in political philosophy in the West, you just kind of have to go through Augustine, you know. Mm. Um, it's because it's a, a Catholic culture borrowing you know, institutional frameworks from Greeks and Romans and attempting to balance those with church institutions. And you have a very complex development of nation states in Europe, you know, eventually. Yeah. So, yeah, you, you flirt around with all that stuff. You know, you don't, I guess you don't really read the, read the more religious aspects of it. But when it comes to that, that vision of the, the city, right? You have, you have a lot of that language. I mean, especially if you're doing American political history and philosophy, you know, some it's formed by half the people that came to form it. were trying to form that new city on a hill. And, you know, we have plenty of presidents with inaugural addresses mm-hmm. using that very lang- very language. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just, We've heard we've heard Paul go on and on about Tom Holland enough to be like, okay, yeah, well, I get it, I get it. <laughs> so. Are you into audiobooks? Yes. Okay. Here's a book I read recently that if you get a couple hours free, I could highly recommend it. A shout out to Luke Thompson of the Discord. Uh, he recommended it. It's called Notes from the Troll Told the World. I think that's the right pronunciation, and it's uh, it's kind of poetry by uh, i think it's by andy wilson uh and it's 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 constantly about wonder and and the world around you and everything and as soon as i get into these sort of analytical despair modes that book is really helpful because as soon as my analytical mind shows up it's you know that book slaps it around like you you have no idea how anything works and right here you are raging against it all and you have like you, you don't know what anything's made of or how everything works and it's uh, it's about five hours of sort of um what's what's the type of poetry that sort of that they go on stage and they recite it it's kind of like that mm, like slam poetry yeah it, it that's what it reminds me of and yeah yeah it's <laughs> it's like slam poetry about your uh imagined enlightened intellect maybe. very very much yeah and very like yeah. existential and funny and wry and 
I'm listening to it for the second time now and it's like, oh man, this is, it, it kind of forces you to realize you're not in control whatsoever. You don't know anything. And the things that are close around you are what you should probably be paying the most attention to. Yeah. At least that, that sounds right up my alley, at least temperamentally and with my type of humor it can be very self self deprecating. And um, yeah, I'm going to check that out. Can you say the title again? Notes from the tilt a world. Okay. Notes from the tilt a world. By, Interesting. I think by N.D. Wilson, but there's probably only one book with that title. It's uh, I think it's a shout out to Dostoevsky's Notes from the Underground. Okay, yeah. Which I haven't read, but yeah. That's that's short. I read it a, a couple of years ago on a little like winter retreat. Um Yeah. Okay. I'm kind of daunted by his works because I tried Brothers Karamazov and I kept forgetting who which character was which. So. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like it's like every Russian name it just seems like the same name. Yeah, and then they yeah. all have nicknames yeah. and yeah it's like that cross-racial bias problem or something but just with names i have to try it again um, and take notes while i read it so i can kind of yeah yeah notes from the underground is a little shorter i mean it's like i guess it's in two parts because there were two separate essays he had written for some publication in the sometime in the 19th century i guess but um yeah all right, Chris, we got a couple minutes left. Is there anything you particularly still want to mention or talk about? Um, man, I don't know. I'm just, I'm going to try to to have more of these conversations with people in this, in this community just because I've been listening to them for so long and conversations with people is just got to make it happen and you know, I appreciate you being willing to reach out and the other people who've been willing to just get together and try to build whatever this community is, whatever it's supposed to be. Yeah. Or whatever we, whatever, yeah, whatever imagination we can come up with. So I'm excited. Well, I love these conversations. Everybody has a story and um, your ideas make me think differently about my own. And th this is great. Thank you. Yeah, uh, I'd very much like to publish this on the podcast if you're cool with it. Sure, I'd love it. All right, man. I'm going to get ready for dinner and I'm going to wish you a great day. All right. Thanks, Jeb. Talk bye -bye. soon.